Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Morolo. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, we're going to take a break from math. We definitely were looking at music from a mathematical perspective in the first two episodes. Although, regardless of whether I'm applying math to another discipline, I find math really, really interesting. I was a double major in math and music in college, and I chose music just because I'm a lot better at music than I am at math, and math is very difficult, especially on higher-level math. But for some reason, people are really threatened with math. Stephen Hawking, when he wrote his bestseller, A Brief History of Time, he was told by his publisher that for every equation he included in his manuscript, sales would be halved. That's kind of disconcerting. I'm sure that's an exaggeration. But it's important to know a little bit about math if you're going to be, certainly if you're going to be talking about science. And it's really important, in my view, to know a little bit about math, just because math is behind all existence. Take a look around you. Everything that you see is there, really, because of math. But today, we are not going to so much talk about math, but we're going to talk about something in 20th century music called pan-diatonicism. Whoa, that is a big word. Well, you know, the prefix pan means all. Now, what is diatonicism? Well, that refers to the diatonic scale, which is something that I've spoken about in previous episodes. When you talk about a diatonic scale, you're really talking about a scale in one of the major modes in tonal music, the major mode or the minor mode. Every scale is made up of scale degrees. And if you think of, for instance, a major scale, there are seven degrees. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you, you know the song, right? Do, a deer. That refers to the syllables for each of those scale degrees. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. And then it goes back to do. So a diatonic scale is simply a scale in tonal music. And if you're a composer working in the major or in the minor mode using one of these diatonic scales, then you usually have to conform to the rules of tonal music. Of course, there are ways to bend the rules and even break them, but chords go places. They progress from one to the other. That's called a chord progression. So if you've heard any of my prior episodes, you heard me talking about the dominant triad. The dominant triad is associated with tension that has to be resolved, and the dominant triad usually resolves to the tonic triad. And the tonic triad is associated with your home key, thus stability. Here's an example of the dominant resolving to the tonic. Now what happens in pan-diatonicism is that the composer, first of all, is not concerned with those traditional progressions. So the chords don't have to progress based on the conventional rules of tonal music. Now, on prior episodes, I talked about a 20th century musical current called Impressionism, and this sounds a lot like Impressionism, because in Impressionism, like the music of Claude Debussy in France, he uses these conventional harmonies, even if they're colored with added factors that make them sound jazzy, like jazz chords. He uses these conventional chords, but they don't progress according to the rules of tonal music as codified by famous composers like Johann Sebastian Bach and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So there's an impressionistic component to pan-diatonicism, but also for the individual chords, 
they don't have all the usual notes. So let me give you an example. Let's talk about the one triad, in other words, the tonic triad. If we think about C major, the tonic triad is C, E, G. But if a composer is using the system of pan-diatonicism, he or she doesn't have to only use those notes in harmony. They add notes. These are called added factors. So a simple triad like C, E, G can suddenly have all these added notes. In fact, it could have many of the notes of the entire scale. You can have six or even seven notes, which comprises an entire scale, by the way. You could have that in one harmony. Let me give you an example. Now, what I just played had the notes of the C triad, C, E, G, but it had a lot of extra notes in there. And if you think that sounded a little bit like jazz, you're right. Pan-diatonic harmonies can sound like jazz. It doesn't mean that it's jazz music. It's just that the harmonies can sound jazzy. And indeed, if you listen to a lot of the music of the 19th century, 19th century romanticism, composers like Franz Liszt and Frédéric Chopin, they will use chords that we can identify as jazz chords, although, of course, they're not composing in the jazz idiom. Jazz has not even been invented yet in the 19th century when they were composing. Now, there are many, many composers in history who have composed with pan-diatonicism. One of my favorite composers of all time, and I don't think I mentioned this in a prior episode, but some of my favorite composers happen to be Russian. So this is Sergei Prokofiev of the 20th century. He was composing during Joseph Stalin's rule, and indeed he got into trouble, as did Dmitry Shostakovich, his contemporary, because... During Stalin's time, you're not supposed to write music that stylistically sounded as if it was being influenced by those dastardly Western composers. So if you wrote music in Russia during Stalin's time and it didn't sound nationalistic enough, didn't sound Russian enough, watch out because he could put you in prison or he could put you to death. Well, Sergei Prokofiev wrote a piano concerto that remains one of my favorite piano concertos to this day. This is piano concerto number three in C major, and this particular concerto was featured in a movie dating back to 1980 starring Richard Dreyfuss and Amy Irving called The Competition. It's because of this movie that I know about the concerto. I didn't know about it before, but when I saw this movie, the character played by Amy Irving named Heidi is entering a piano competition and she's competing against Paul played by Richard Dreyfuss and she is playing in this competition Piano Concerto Number no. 3 by Prokofiev. And when I heard this, I absolutely had to buy the record. Yes, back then I was buying records. You might know that records are coming back now, so it's not as passé as you think. Well, it turns out this piano concerto, very famous by the way in the repertoire, features pan-diatonicism. Now, this concerto is in C major, and it is in C major, but not conventionally in C major, because if it was conventionally in C major, we would be talking about a piano concerto maybe by Mozart or Beethoven, but this is definitely not a conventional C major, and that's what makes it pan-diatonic. Now, this is the opening melody, first played simply by a clarinet.
Now, I'm not claiming to be anything close to Mozart, but if Mozart was going to harmonize that melody, he might do something like this. Now, the way Prokofiev harmonizes it is a lot different, and I'm going to simplify it, but basically this is what he does. Now, first of all, that was not a conventional C major progression in terms of traditional tonal music. And second of all, he puts extra notes in those harmonies that are not usually associated with those particular diatonic harmonies, and I even left some notes out. So with that in mind, let me play you an actual performance at the very beginning of this concerto. This is Gary Grafman playing the piano with George Sell and the Cleveland Orchestra. thing to remember about pan-diatonicism is that in a particular chord, you're not limited to the notes that are usually in a particular chord. You could use all of them if you want, which is why we use the prefix pan, meaning all. You could use as many of the notes in the scale in one chord as you'd like. By the way, in that excerpt when the piano came in, do you remember this new melody? I always wondered if that theme inspired John Williams to use his going out to sea theme in the film Jaws. Have you seen Jaws? If you haven't seen Jaws, you got to see it. Now, I'd like to play you an excerpt from the third movement. What you just heard was from the very beginning of the first movement. Prokofiev was a virtuoso pianist, and this is a good example of him really showing what he can do on the piano. This is another example of, yep, you guessed it, pan-diatonicism. The passage is in C major but the chords have all these added notes that give a very distinctive color. That's, that's the thing with 20th century music, is that the composers come up with ways of giving a very distinct color to their harmonies that composers in the past never thought of. Now, remember before I was talking about the movie that featured this particular piano concerto, The Competition, with Richard Dreyfuss and Amy Irving? And towards the end of the film... She is playing the concerto, and she plays parts of every movement, first, second, and third. And when she plays the ending of the third movement, it looks like she's doing glissandos. Now, glissandos is when you move your fingers rapidly up and down the piano, and you get an effect like this. 
But when you look at the score, Prokofiev doesn't actually notate this as a glissando. He notates it with two notes at a time rapidly going up and down the piano. So, for instance, C and D are played at the same time, followed by E and F, followed by G and A. So it's a kind of a scale, except you have to play two notes at a time rapidly, really rapidly going up and down the piano. And that is definitely pandiatonic because he's playing these scales where each note is not a single note, but two notes right next to each other. And every single note is represented going up and down the scale. And you get this effect of the entire scale at once. It's like he's presenting all the notes of the scale melodically and harmonically simultaneously. So here's the excerpt from the third movement, and I encourage you to listen to the entire piece. about that part of the piece is the unbridled exuberance. It's like musical fireworks. It really is. Now for the next example, we're going to look at a very famous piece by a very famous American composer, Aaron Copland. This is a ballet that he wrote in the mid-40s entitled Appalachian Spring, which is basically based on a story about a young husband and his new bride trying to make their way as pioneers in early America. It was originally scored for a small chamber ensemble of 13 instruments, but later a Copeland adapted it for full orchestra, and it actually wound up winning the Pulitzer Prize in Music in 1945. And in this ballet, Copeland incorporates a piece that at the time a lot of people didn't even know existed, but now everybody knows it. It's a shaker melody, and the shakers, their real name were the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. And one of the more well-known melodies among the Shakers was a piece called Simple Gifts, and I think you'll recognize it. Aaron Copland, like many talented composers, had a special gift for bringing the folk element in his music and giving it that distinctive flavor that made it sound nationalistic. So when you listen to Copeland's music, it sounds like Americana. And it sounds like that because first, he has a very unique voice, and second, using the folk element really helps. And there are many moments in this ballet and other ballets that he wrote, like Billy the Kid and Rodeo, where he uses pandiatonicism, but it doesn't sound like Sergei Prokofiev. It sounds like Copeland and it has a distinctly Americana flavor the way he uses it. Let me give you an example. One of the themes that Aaron Copeland uses is a very simple folk-like melody. It goes like this. Now, if your everyday ordinary composer wanted to harmonize this with conventional progressions, it might sound something like this. Now, the last two chords of that progression were simply dominant to tonic, otherwise known as Roman numeral 5 to Roman numeral 1. Music theorists use Roman numerals. And that's exactly what Aaron Copland does with the last two chords, is just dominant to tonic. But not at the beginning. What he does is 
He does the bass line that I just played, but he delays it. He delays that bass line that I just played. So instead, you get this. Now, let me play that first chord for you so you can get an idea of how it sounds pan-diatonic. Now, that chord I just played, out of the first five notes of a regular scale, he uses four of them at the same time. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play that chord again, but I'm only going to play the bass and the soprano, in other words, the melody note. Now, by itself, that sounds pretty harsh. The name of that interval that I just played is called a minor ninth. It's really the same thing as a minor second or a half step or two adjacent notes on the piano. When you play two adjacent notes on the piano, it sounds pretty harsh. But in this context, with this pan-diatonic harmony where Copland is just throwing in a lot of notes in the scale for one chord, it really has a very particular effect, a particular somehow Americana effect. You get the image of young American pioneers settling down for the first time in Appalachia, and it's done with this very simple folk-like melody. Now let's hear the entire orchestra played so you really get a flavor of Copland's style. that was Santo Matthias Rivali conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra. What I really love about that music is not only do you picture in your head a very peaceful prairie, maybe in Appalachia, but it just sounds American. It really does. Now, the last piece I want to play for you is by a very famous 19th century German Romantic composer, Gustav Mahler. He's famous for his symphonies, and later in his life, he wrote a set of songs for voice and orchestra called Das Lied van der Erde, or Songs of the Earth. These are based on ancient Chinese poems that talk about basically death, grief, loss of death, but also reconciliation with death and transfiguration. Transfiguration is a word that you see a lot in philosophy of the 19th century, both in literature and in music. And when writers and composers are grappling with the idea of death, they like to use the optimistic word transfiguration. It's even in a very famous tone poem by Richard Strauss called Death and Transfiguration. So this is a theme that provided much food for creative thought during that time. If you're going to write about death, you might as well make it a transfigurative experience.
Now, kind of uh, an amusing and also disturbing story is that Mahler did not want to write a Ninth Symphony because it turns out there are many composers who wrote nine symphonies and died. For instance, Beethoven wrote nine symphonies, began his Tenth Symphony and died. Bruckner wrote nine symphonies and died. Dvorak wrote nine symphonies and died. So Mahler did not want to be the next victim in that Ninth Symphony curse. So when he wrote the Songs of the Earth, he called it a symphony, even though it really wasn't a symphony. It was just a set of songs for voice and orchestra. And then later on, he wrote his true Ninth Symphony, which was really a symphony, and then he died. So folks out there, if you're going to write a whole bunch of symphonies, please stop after your eighth. Trust me on that. Now, the last song in the cycle is called The Farewell, and it runs about a half hour longer than the other songs in the cycle combined. It's probably one of the most beautiful movements that Mahler ever composed. And the theme of it is the union of the earth with the body in eternity, so that when the body dies, it becomes eternal because it is unified with the eternal earth, and the earth never dies. So there's this kind of a spiritual and a physical connection with the eternal earth. And this particular movement is based on two ancient Chinese poems. And at the very end of the movement, the text reads, My heart is calm and awaits its hour. Everywhere the beloved earth blooms in the spring and is newly green. Everywhere and forever, the distances are blue and bright. Forever, forever. And the vocal part keeps saying the word ewig, E-W-I-G, which means in German forever. And the vocal part becomes one of the orchestral instruments. It becomes just another part of the orchestra. It's unified with the orchestra in the same way that the body is unified with the earth. Of course, Mahler has nothing to say about the possibility that the person was cremated, in which case he or she is residing in an urn on the mantle. But I think we'll discard that possibility. What I want to focus on is the very last word that keeps repeating, ewig, ewig, E-W-I-G. And the, the vocal part, like I said, just becomes synthesized with the texture of the orchestra. It's a really beautiful effect. And the very last chord is kind of, you can almost think of it as like the forever chord. It's not resolved conventionally. In other words, when we think of a conventional re resolution, we just think of the dominant going to the tonic or five going to one. Well, this is a one chord, but it's kind of just hanging in eternity because there are so many notes in this chord. That's right. You're thinking exactly what I'm thinking. It's a pan-diatonic harmony. So there are many notes in the scale making it less stable. It sounds less stable than just your everyday garden variety one triad, which would just be CEG, for instance. So I'm going to play you the last few measures of the movement called Farewell. And notice the orchestration. It's very gentle. He uses instruments like the harp and the celesta to compose out this serene, calm, peaceful union of the body with the earth.
that beautiful recording was Bernard Haitink conducting the Concertgebouw Orchestra. Anna Larson was the soprano. Now, Mahler was not finished with the theme of death because in his Ninth Symphony, he actually composes out his own heart attack. And as I said, he didn't live to compose his Tenth Symphony. But I think we'll leave it at that. I hope to see you next time because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better. <laughs>